Okay, today we are going to look at another one of the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophet we're talking about today is Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived in the same time period as Jeremiah. He was one of the prophets through whom God spoke to his people when they were in exile in Babylon. He was actually, this is as the people are in Babylon, and they've already been taken captive, Ezekiel was one of the prophets that was still telling the people that they needed to get their lives straight and they needed to change and they, they needed to follow back the, way, the ways that God had led them in, in the past. Other information that we know about Ezekiel's life comes from the information that he gives us in, the, in his book. His prophecies contained more specific dates than practically any other in the Old Testament. Because of that specificity of Ezekiel's writings, we can correlate them with Babylonian records and date many of them. The Babylonians kept excellent records, and Ezekiel used a lot of descriptive writings. So you can match up his writings with historical records of the Babylonians, and we can get a lot better feel of where he's, the time period of Ezekiel. For example, we know that Ezekiel was taken in one of the groups that was taken out of Jerusalem, there was a group of about 10,000 Jews that were taken into exile at Babylon the same time that Ezekiel went. Ezekiel, we know also through his writing, that he heard his call to become a prophet while he was in Babylon. We know that Ezekiel was married and he owned a home. Uh, that contrasts to Jeremiah because, remember, Jeremiah specifically was told by God that he was not to marry and he was not to have children, but that was the way that God called him. Ezekiel, on the other hand, was married. He had his own house living in Babylon, and that might sound strange because they were in captivity, but if you remember that although the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, they were allowed to have their own homes, they were allowed to operate their own businesses, and that eventually led to a problem with many of them when it was time to go because they were like, well, we're comfortable here. You know, everything's not that bad, but you're in captivity. Yeah, but it's not that bad. We might just stay here. Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 4. And some of this might sound a little bit familiar as we read it. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. We're back to that sour grapes and the children's teeth. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you, are no, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son, both alike, belong to me. The Son who sins is the one who dies, who will die. The soul who sins is the one who will die. So we see we're back to a message that Jeremiah had conveyed also, and it was that the Lord found this whole sour grapes thing as just, it really made him angry. And he found that this, this proverb that they were circulating while they were in captivity, he really spoke through Ezekiel to tell the people, you just need to tell them to stop. It was kind of, Jeremiah had predicted that this pro proverb eventually would be seen as false, and Ezekiel now is saying that the end has come. So Jeremiah was saying that you need to stop it. And Ezekiel followed it up with, you just ain't going to do it no more. 
That would be a modern-day translation of bad English. To make sure that the people knew that the, the word was coming from the Lord, Ezekiel prefaced the announcement with the words, the word of the Lord came to me. That was just in case somebody said, ah, Ezekiel, you're just making that up. Nope. Before he said anything, he said, this is coming from God. What I'm fixing to say here is coming straight from God. That whole sour grapes thing, you need to leave it alone. And the problem with it, the proverb implied that they were being unjustly punished for the sins of their fathers. And we've talked about this before. We're going a little bit more into depth today. Since God does not punish the innocent for the sins of others, the Israelites attempt to avoid guilt for their own idolatry and disobedience was just outright rejected by God. God said, that's just not going to fly. You can blame whoever you want to blame, but you're going to be held, account be held accountable for your own sins. God was clearly offended by the people's presumptuousness in hiding behind this untrue assertion. And therefore, God declares in verse 3, or as Ezekiel wrote, the sovereign Lord declares that this little pet proverb of the people would no longer be quoted. You're not going to say it anymore. Just stop it. Stop it now. The effects of sin can be cumulative. Because the moral and the spiritual decay of a generation can have a profound, long-lasting effect on the people that follow. But the sins of one person are not paid for by another person. And we talked before about how in the, the culture of that day that you had maybe several generations living in one house so that if one person went out and did something wrong, it could affect several generations of people because they were in the same household. In our day, it could be carried through by if somebody chose to live their life in a horrible lifestyle, it could affect the way that their kids grow up, their, their grandkids grow up, but their kids are not paying for the sins of the father. It's still a choice that each of us have. God's message to Ezekiel revealed that each person is culpable for his or her own sin. And we have to take responsibility for the things we do. Regardless of a way, the way that a person's ancestors lived, every individual still has choices to make. And ultimately, that each person's choice is their own. Ezekiel revealed that the fallacy of the Israelites' assumption by citing these three hypothetical situations of three different generations of people. And he started each one with, suppose this happened. And Ezekiel 18 and 5, this is the first one. Suppose there, was a, there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. So you have this guy, the first guy that Ezekiel talks about. Here's a guy that, that does what's just. He does what's right. And he goes on through this whole series of things that this guy does that are right. He doesn't look to idols. He doesn't oppress his people. He doesn't commit robbery. He helps people in need. He judges people fairly. And he follows the laws and the decrees of God. And this whole list of things that this man does that are right. And then Ezekiel ends that scenario of this man's life by saying this in Ezekiel 18 and 9, that man is righteous, he will surely live. And then comes the next example. And the next example is suppose that that man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of those other things. In other words, here's a guy that is the complete antithesis of his father. 
In fact, it goes on to list everything that his father did not do, it lists that the son did. He is the complete opposite of his father. And Ezekiel ends the scenario of this man's life by saying this in verse 13. Will such a man live? He will not. So the man that did good, the end of his life is such, will such a man live? Yes, he will. And here's the guy that did the exact opposite of that. Will such a man live? No, he won't. He's going to die. But then here comes the third scenario. The son has a son. And let's read that in verse 14. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins of his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. Again, it lists all the things that this son does not do, although he saw his father do them. And what is the outcome of this person? Look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, 17 through 21. He with, this is some of the things he does. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The Son will not share the guilt of the Father, nor will the Father share the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from all sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. So Ezekiel is making it very, very plain here that here was this first man that lived a righteous life. He's going to live. His son comes along and lives the exact opposite of his father. He's going to die. The next son comes along. The grandson of the first man comes along, and although he sees his father live this horrible life, he makes a choice to live a good life. He's not going to pay for the sins of his father. God doesn't do that. God doesn't make one person pay for the sins of another. That's only happened one time. And that was enough for everybody, and that was when Jesus Christ gave his life for the sins of everyone. There was no need for anyone else because nobody else's blood would have done what Jesus has did. After covering these three hypothetical situations, Ezekiel anticipates the Israelites asking in verse 19, why the son didn't share in the father's guilt? Yet you ask, why does the son not share in the guilt of his father? They just didn't get it. They just didn't get it that everybody was responsible for their own actions. And Ezekiel's answer is a restatement of the principle of individual or personal responsibility. God repeated his verdict that the son would live 
because he did what was just and right, and because he carefully obeyed all of God's commands and decrees. The principle is plain. In verse 4 and verse 20, it says the exact same thing. The soul who sins is the one who will die. There is no transfer of righteousness from one person to the other. I cannot do anything that will make you be saved. I can explain salvation to you. I can tell you how great it is. But I cannot be saved and live a godly life for you because that is something you have to do on your own. By the same token, there is no transfer of guilt from one person to another. I will not be held accountable for your sins and you will not be held accountable for mine. We stand on our own. When we stand before God on the, the day of judgment, we won't have an attorney next to us that's, that says, well, I'm representing him. No, we stand on our own. God made it abundantly clear through the writings of Ezekiel that neither the Father nor the Son bore any responsibility for the guilt of the other. Or... Neither the father nor the son derived any benefit from the righteousness of the other. That son that saw his father do all those wicked things and decided to live a good life, it didn't do anything for his father. His father still died a wicked person. Individual, personal repentance. Followed by a person's obedience to God's commands and righteous living results in life rather than death. Let me give an example from our time. How many recognize the name Madeline Murray O'Hare? She made history when she and her son William, who was a high school student at the time, sued the Baltimore public schools to stop prayer and Bible reading in the classroom. Their lawsuit eventually led to the 1963 Supreme Court decision that banned prayer and Bible reading in public schools. She was the head of an atheist organization. She was, as her son later told, an evil person. But as evil a person as Madeline Murray O'Hare was, in 1980, her son William, who was the center of that lawsuit, gave his life to Christ and has spent his life from there till now telling of the goodness of God. So here's a mother that was just evil. And if you read her biography, there's stuff in there that I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say in church of stuff that she did. On the other hand, William's brother John decided to follow after his mother and her atheistic beliefs. In addition to that, William's daughter, Robin, separated herself from her father and followed after her grandmother. And later they found Madeline, John, and Robin, after they'd been missing for a couple years, chopped up in little pieces and buried in a grave in Texas. So we see three generations of family. Despite the influences, whether good influences or bad influences, they still had to make their own decisions. And ultimately, will have to pay for their individual decisions. Madeline, the mother, 
will pay for her decisions. William, although he started off in the wrong direction because he was the center of the lawsuit, at some point came to Christ and accepted salvation and was saved. Remember, if you go back to Ezekiel, it said if a man commits sin but he turns away from it, he will live. William's brother, John, decided just to follow along with his mother. And then William's daughter, who saw her father live a good life and change to serving God, chose to go the other direction too. There is not a single person in all of those people that will have to pay for any of the other one's decisions. Each one will pay for their own decision. I believe that Ezekiel wrote this next passage of Scripture for anyone who didn't understand the previous passage. He wrote the first one to kind of the, the soft version, and then this is the next one. Ezekiel 18, 25-32. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live, he will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. And God asks again, Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So from that first passage to this passage, the Israelites' response to God's judgment was this childish accusation of him being unfair or unjust. Because Ezekiel writes, you ask, God, why are you so unjust? And God answers, am I unjust? Or is it just that your ways are unjust? And God respond, he responds, to the contrary, I'm not unjust. It's you who's at fault. The Israelites had this idea that it was God's responsibility to abide by their standard of justice rather than their responsibility to abide by His. God, you don't understand. You need to look at the way we're doing here and, and give us a break. You need to lower your standards a little bit. And let us alone and we can just keep living like we're living. Sadly, a lot of churches have chosen to do that so they can have a bigger congregation, but that's another message. Instead of wholeheartedly accepting God's law and trying to live by it, people searched for escape clauses and loopholes in the law. Kind of like we do today. Nobody wants to take responsibility. You can go out and kill 18 people and, and admit that you killed them, 
But if you get a good enough attorney to find out that they didn't read you your rights in the right way, it doesn't matter if you killed 18 people and they got it on videotape and you admitted it. Because they're looking for a loophole. Because of God's infinite love, He will mercifully forgive sinners who repent of their sins and turn back to Him. He made that clear in this passage. But because of His justice, He will not ignore the sins of those who are walking in righteousness and then turn to evil. God is a loving God, but He is a just God. And because of His love, He will forgive us. But because of His justice, He won't overlook sin. And the reason He won't overlook sin is because He gives us the ability to repent. And He gives us the opportunity to repent. And if we have the opportunity to repent and we don't, whose fault is that? It's not God's. While the Israelites who repented and practiced righteousness would live, those who chose sin over righteousness would not live. Now, in a historical context of this passage, let's, let's put this into historical context for just a moment. The message concerning life and death, divine blessing and judgment was not about eternity here. Okay? The judgment in view for the Israelites in Ezekiel's day was a, a literal death at the hands of the Babylonians, not eternal separation from God. We weren't talking about a salvation thing here. Remember, they were under the law. If they went and offered their annual sacrifice and the priest offered the sacrifice, their sins were pushed ahead for another year. So this is not what they're talking about here. This is a literal, you're going to die. The application for us, if we read the book of Ezekiel and apply it to our day under a whole new dispensation, is totally different. But we'll come back to that. Through Ezekiel, God repeated the principle one more time that his judgment of the house of Israel would be based on each person's individual sin. The current generation of idolatrous, disobedient Israelites were responsible for the fall of the nation, not the generations past. It was kind of like God was saying, you don't have to blame your forefathers for where you are. You have plenty of sin yourself. I don't have to hold them accountable. You've done this to yourself. The only hope of avoiding further calamity for them was to repent of their sins and return to following God's commands. The future of Israel and the fate of the people rested with each individual. Each person stood on their own. Those who continued to live in sin and rebellion would die, and those who repented would live. And I say that, that this passage kind of goes further than the, the first passage we read because Ezekiel wrote the same thing over and over and over and over. In case you didn't get it the 14th time, here's the 15th. He wanted the people to understand this is the way it is. And sometimes we have to say those things more times than we normally have to because people don't want to hear that. We really don't like to hear that we're responsible for everything we do.
That's exactly right. That's a, that's a great point. And there's some unbelievably success, a lot of unbelievably successful people in today's society that did not have a good childhood. They did not have everything handed to them. But they made a determination, I'm going to take responsibility for myself. I'm not going to blame everything that's ever happened to me on my parents. I'm going to get up and make something of myself. And you know what? With that attitude, you can go do something. Israel's only hope of escaping judgment was changed lives. God longed to to give his people a heart that followed after his way. Something that, that made them want to go back to following the law. And when they did that, then they would have hope, a renewed hope, a renewed purpose, and power to do what they need to do. Because he is a just and righteous God, verse 32 says that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. God is not the kind of God that a lot of people look at as all He wants to do is catch us doing something wrong so He can zap us. That's not the kind of God we serve. God doesn't want to do that to anyone. That's why He gives us a choice. If God enjoyed destroying people, He would just let us go and not give us a choice. And we would just all die. But that's not the kind of God we, we serve. He is a loving God that says... Here, you, here are your choices. If you remember going back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah told the people in his prophecy, you're standing at a crossroad. You're standing at the, the place where two roads come together, and you can go this way or you can go this way. Choose. And each of us in our life come to a place that at some point we have to say, I am standing at a crossroad, and I have to make a choice. Either I'm going to continue in the direction that I'm taking my life, or I'm going to take the direction that God wants me to go, and I'll follow after that. But when we get to the end of the road, whichever way we choose, we can't blame God. If we take the words of Ezekiel and apply it to our day, we can see that it, it applies as much now, if not more, than it did in Ezekiel's day. We can all give reasons to God why we should not be held accountable for what we do. Here's some common ones. I live in an environment that encourages sin. Yes, you do. We all do. But just like the Israelites had a choice... We do too. We don't have to do it. Just as no one can make you live for Christ, no one can make you not live for Him. Jesus gave the ultimate example of what it was to be in the world, but not be like the world. Yeah, I don't want to hear I just want to sing to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. We love singing that song, but do we really want to be like Jesus? Because although He went around in the world and He was around people that weren't good people, and although people did things to Him, it didn't change who He was. And another one is, well, my family background's not Christian. It doesn't matter. 
The good news for you is that you don't have to pay for the failure of your family not being Christians. Remember? You don't pay for the sins of your fathers. So that's good news. What they did and how they lived will determine their ultimate destiny. Your destiny does not have to be the same as theirs. And it won't be unless you choose to live the same way they did. Well, my friends aren't Christians and they make me do things I don't want to do. And my first response would be then you need to get some new friends. Again, the things that we choose to do are just that, our choice. Friends can influence us, but they don't make us do things that we know are wrong. Well, I have a sinful nature. I can't stop sinning. We all have a sinful nature. When we are born, we are born into sin. We are born as sinners. And unless some point, at some point we receive salvation, we will die the same way. The difference is, when we've received Christ into our lives, we have power. Look what Roman, or Acts 1 and 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That power that causes us to be witnesses is the same power that gives us boldness to say, I'm not going to do that. That power, that same power that causes us to be able to go up to somebody and tell them how good God has been to me is the same power that we can say, you know what? No. I'm just not going to do that. Look what Paul wrote in in Romans 18 or 8, 8 and 13. And see how close it is to what Ezekiel wrote. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And the key phrase in there is by the Spirit. Paul wrote something similar in a letter to the Galatians, Galatians 5 and 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Again, the key phrase in there, by the Spirit. So when we have received that Spirit, it gives us power. And Paul went on to say in his writings that that power will help us overcome that sinful nature. So the excuse of, I have a sinful nature and I can't stop sinning? Maybe you need to get the Holy Ghost. That's right. In other words, rather than trying to abstain from sin on our own, which is impossible, we should supersede the sinful nature with the nature of the Spirit. Listen to this example. It's kind of like the law of gravity. We can fight gravity on our own, and we can try to beat it on our own, but it will always win. If you don't believe me, jump up in the air and see if you can stay there. Even Michael Jordan, as high as he could jump from such a great distance, eventually he always came back down. Gravity will always win. But when we fly in a plane, the law of gravity is still there, right? 
It's simply being superseded by another law, the law of aerodynamics. Sin will always be there. We just need to supersede it with the Holy Spirit. You can't get rid of gravity. You won't get rid of sin in the world. But you can supersede it with something that's more powerful. We hate owning up to our own faults and failures, so we often try to find reasons why the blame doesn't belong at us. It's our attempt at no-fault living. But God sees right through that. Even though we do something and say, hey, it wasn't my fault, God knows it was. You might fool the people around you, but you're not fooling God. We live in a society where personal responsibility has become a rarity. It's easier to blame everyone else for our faults, and sadly, it has pretty much been accepted as that's okay to do. Bill has a nice home and a nice car. And Bob looks over there and says, how come I don't have those things? Well, I would say to Bob that if you were willing to work as hard and sacrifice as much as Bill, you could. But we seem to be evolving into a society that says, Bob, we understand and it's not your fault. So what we're going to do is take some of Bill's stuff and give it to you instead. That will not encourage Bill to become responsible. If anything, it will cause him to do less and expect more. And that goes back to the exact same thing that Ezekiel was talking to the people about. Personal responsibility for our actions. If God had listened to the Israelites when they blamed everyone else for their sins and their problems, and God would have said, well, it's not your fault, don't worry about it. Let me ask you this. Do you think they would have ever changed? Would they have ever had a reason to change? No. Because if there's no personal responsibility, there's no motivation. We wonder why there's a generation of young people coming along that don't take responsibility for anything. It's because we're, we're encouraging it from this high. We have little t-ball games where we don't keep score because we don't want anybody to know they lost. Well, that's just not reality. Well, we're not going to give out A's, B's, C's, and D's, and E's, or F's because... You know, it just reinforces failure. No, it points it out. But see what it does, it creates a generation of people who don't, they don't accept personal responsibility. I can go out and instead of playing t-ball like everyone else, and I've seen this happen, believe me, I've been to a lot of t-ball games. Kids actually sit down in the outfield and they're playing with bugs on the field. Now, if that kid plays like that and he loses, he should know why he lost. On the other hand, other hand my son playing t-ball, I'll never forget this. The first time he got up, t-ball is where you put the baseball on a post to tee, like a big giant golf tee. And then you take a bat and you hit it off the tee. 
So my son, who learned and watched his grandmother an awful lot, gets up to the tee. He was probably six, five, and this is what he does. Knocks the dirt off his cleats <laughs> and spits. <laughs> and when he was playing in the infield, since there were so many kids that weren't taking it seriously, he was they don't have a pitcher, but they have somebody that stands in that position. There was somebody running to first, and the guy at first just never paid attention and couldn't catch the ball. So Jeffrey figured the only way to get the guy out was just hit him with the ball. So he just threw the ball and hit him right in the square of the back. He wanted to win. But I will tell you this today. He's playing baseball in college. He's playing for a team that's won four national championships. He learned how to win. I could go a lot of directions here, and I won't. <laughs> we don't like to believe, not always but often, we don't like to believe that we are where we are because of our own actions. What God was saying that it was that it really doesn't matter if you take personal responsibility for your actions. They're yours anyway. You don't have to take responsibility for them, but they don't, that didn't get rid of them. And in the end, you're going to be judged for them, whether you take responsibility for them or not. There are at least, at least two underlying motivations for not taking personal responsibility. The main two, I believe, are pride and fear. And pride tells us not to accept responsibility for our actions by encouraging encouraging us to feel above being held responsible for our wrongdoings. That's what pride tells us. Oh, I don't have to listen to you or anyone else. I don't have to take responsibility for that. On the other hand, fear happens when we realize we've done wrong, yet we hope to slide out from under the responsibility because we're afraid of the consequences. Ooh, I am in trouble. Ooh. Mm, I'm just not gonna just not gonna admit it. Regardless of any of that, the bottom line for God is this. When we sin, we are to blame. Short version. We are accountable. We do not get away with anything, even though at the time it might have seemed like we did. God requires us to answer for our own behavior. When this life is over and we stand before Him as our judge, with all of our excuses stripped away, we will have no choice but to own up to the truth. There is good news, though. I would never leave it at that. Today, we can own up to the truth. And we can ask God to forgive us. And the best part of that is that He will. So we have a choice. Do we, we live our life the way we want to live it? 
and just go through life saying, well, it's not really my fault. You just don't understand. But I have these friends, and we blame everything on everybody else. And that whole idea of entitlement that has just taken over our society starts to seep into our spiritual life too, and we feel like we're just automatically entitled to salvation regardless of what we do. No. There are certain things we have to do to receive salvation. It is free, yes. But it requires some things on our part. Amen. We can have every sin that we ever committed washed away for all time, never to be remembered against us again. How cool is that? Everything we've ever done. Now here we've talked about for 40 minutes about how we will all pay for everything we've ever done. And yet here we find out that we can just ask for forgiveness and change our direction and all of those things are washed away for all time. Wow. That is really cool. Try as we might on our own. It is only through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, that we can really find no-fault living. Because when we are forgiven, when we have accepted the blood of Jesus Christ on our life, all of those sins that we've committed that we're going to be held accountable for someday are washed away completely. Not pushed ahead to next year. Not written in the back of the book waiting to throw them in our face again. When God forgives us, it says, the Bible says, that our sins are as far away as the east is from the west. Or the east is from the west. So all of those sins that we're going to ultimately pay for, just wiped away. You go, well, that's too easy. No, it's not. It is for us, but it wasn't for Jesus because He came to earth as a man, never sinned, never did anything wrong, and yet He was crucified and beaten and hung on a cross to die for you and for me. And all we have to do is accept that. So we have a choice. We keep all of our sins, we stand before God with all of our sins, and we know what the outcome of that is. We ask Him to forgive us and fill me with your Spirit so that I have power to, to live for you. And it's only through the forgiving blood of Jesus that we can stand before God and not be held accountable for all of those sins of this life. And that only happens when we truly repent. And I would ask you this. Why not today? God bless you.